I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. I know, you guys, the start of 2022 has been uh, like one of those sickening roller coasters for investors with factors like the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates, most likely by March, and the ongoing pandemic-induced supply chain logjams triggering extraordinarily volatile stock market moves. I mean, they've been scary for a lot of people. But like me, my guest today actually tries to make sense of it every single day in order to give you the tools you need to make the right investment decisions. He's got an incredible investment track record. Yes, he's here today to share his best investment advice for free with you. And that's really valuable, by the way. That's a good deal. But he's also here to talk about his climb from a kid growing up in Harlem to joining the Air Force, working as a security guard, and eventually to becoming one of the most trusted and successful financial news anchors in America. Joining me now is my friend, the host of Making Money with Charles Payne, Charles Payne. Welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Hey, thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I'm so glad you are because, I mean, I see you through the cameras every day. I see you at work, but I also know your background. And I thought to myself, I want our viewers to know that too, because it is so amazing to me from whence you came and your climb and how difficult it was and what you have achieved. Uh, and, and that's where I really want to begin, because okay. as a kid growing up in, you know, you could say poverty, correct? I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about that. Yeah, no, it's uh, I had two childhoods. So uh, and that's and that's what really, I think, makes the overall childhood unique. Uh, the the first part of my childhood, I lived on an army basis. My father was in the military. He fought in Vietnam. Uh, he loved the military. And we moved every year, Liz. I mean, it's, mm. it was crazy. I was born in New York. Then we moved to Pittsburgh. Then we moved to San Antonio. Then we moved to Germany. Then we moved back to Pittsburgh. Then we moved to Japan, back to Texas, Alabama, North Carolina, and Virginia. Now, oh, the good news is you learn how to make friends very quickly. Mm. You really do. And adapt. The bad news is I have no childhood friends. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, I, I get a little jealous when people say, oh, I know little Tommy from first grade. I have no <laughs> idea who I went to school with at first grade. 
So you have pros and cons, right? You lived around the world and, you know, I can remember leaving the base in Japan and, you know, you, you get a sort of really, you get an amazing flavor, international flavor. And also I got to tell you, growing up on army bases in the sixties and seventies was a sort of an insulation too. You didn't have, you know, the, the ills of the, the, the struggles of the nation back then, you know, the, the civil rights movement, the racial, mm-hmm. racial uh, things, didn't exist, or at least I didn't see them on army bases. You know, it was really like, it was an amazing experiment all to be quite frank with you. Like my first best friend was a white guy. My first girlfriend was white. It wasn't because of anything else, except that was the circumstances. Right. Mm-hmm. So we played together. I just never saw anything racial or racist. So it was really, and, and to a degree, it was sort of, it, it wasn't necessarily reality in some ways. Sure. So I come home from school one day in Virginia we're in Fort Lee, Virginia, two-story house. I have my own room. My brother's share room because it was huge. We had a guest room. We had a staircase like the Brady Bunch. I mean, you know, <laughs> we were living a life, right? I mean, never locked the doors. We play all day, come in the house, make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, go out and play again. The big thing for me is my father made me cut the grass. That's a different story. Uh, <laughs> he, he believed in those push mowers, not the electric ones, because, you know, it had to build character. Oh, so, God. So anyway, I come home from school. My mom said, we're leaving. So me and my two younger brothers and my mom, we leave that day. We get on a bus uh, from Fort Lee, Virginia, this amazing, beautiful environment. We go to New York, Harlem at the time, early 70s, the poorest, most dangerous neighborhood in America. Instant culture shock, obviously. I mean, instant culture shock. I, you, I can't even begin to tell you the culture shock. Um, and, you know, my mom, she went to stay with a childhood friend. We, we lived in one room inside of an apartment building all four of us. And, you know, it was, it was so amazing because on one hand, I never felt that kind of energy, just walking down the block, the music coming from cars, coming from boom boxes, coming from windows, the dress, the way people were dressed, the energy was so amazing. But then we go in the building and we get in and the elevator, I, you know, first of all, I was like, wow, these people have an elevator. But then there was this funny smell on the other elevator it turned out to be pee. Yeah. Right. And then, of course, there was the crime. And, 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 and along with the energy, you had a certain amount of anger, a certain amount of desperation with hope. It was just an amazing eclectic mix. But I'd never seen anything like that in my life. So that was childhood number two. But you, right. you kind of jumped over the, the break there of what forced the transition. Well, you just my came parents, home and your parents divorced. Yes, they were divorcing. They were divorcing. My mother was leaving. It was that simple. And we all left. Did you have and any idea that there was tension? Tension, yeah. Divorce, no. You know, but I was so oblivious. And, and I think that was really my life, right? I mean, I was just, it was just a, such a carefree life. You know, and to give you an example, we, we stay with this, uh, our friend, uh, my mom's friend for a few, maybe a month and a half, two months, and we got our own apartment. And winter came around, and we had no heat or hot water during the entire winter. Stop. We had lived on all of these places, and I just, again, naive. I just thought heat and hot water came with the place. <laughs> I didn't know it was optional. Uh, so, oh my God. You know, we, we, we went from this, again, it's amazing, but by the same token, by the same token, this is where I started to have the impetus to be who I am now. I was the oldest. We had no money. I had to help. 
So initially I would get like paper towels and Windex and clean windshields at stoplights or stop signs. And then I would shovel snow in, you know, in front of stores and bodegas. I finally got a job at a bodega uh, and that was rough. It's so weird when I, and I, I'm, you know, we watch people and we're talking about the crime spree. And I, you know, so I hope New Yorkers who live in New York now never see the crime spree that we saw in the 70s or 80s really? when the crack, crack epidemic came because I mean, I was working in the store and I had a crowbar in my hand all the time, like just wow. to fight people every single day. And I'm 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. So I just, I'm just saying to myself, I got to get out of this. I got to get my family out of this. So everybody I know equates money with Wall Street. I don't know when we do it, but it happens, right? We all just equate that. So I knew that I heard of Wall Street. So I started getting to the Wall Street Journal. Wait a minute. How old are you at this point? 13. You're reading the journal at 13. Yes, I'm trying to read the journal. (laughs) (laughs) Because everyone listening needs to go get an old journal from the 19, go get a 1976, 1977 Wall Street Journal. Mm. It's nothing but lines and tables and small columns and numbers. And it is, it took me months and months and months to start figuring that stuff out. Did anybody help you? No. So you're self-taught, you're in this process, and do you start to get hooked and interested in stocks? At 14 years old, I told my mother, I'm going to work on Wall Street. At 17, I bought my first mutual fund. She had to co-sign because I wasn't 18 years old. And at 18, after joining the Air Force, I bought my first stock, which was MCI, which by the way, Doubled in about six months. So I was hooked, hooked, and seriously hooked. <laughs> MCI, for those of you who don't remember, was a telecom, correct? It was amazing. You know why I loved it? Before, it got involved in some scams later, but originally, MCI was this maverick who said, I'm going to go against the biggest corporation in the world. At the time, it was AT&T. There yeah. was no company bigger. It was a monopoly. They controlled all of our communications. So how was he going to go after them? He was Back, he was piggybacking off of people's TV antennas <laughs> to take on the world's biggest company. I said, this is my man. I love him. I'm going with him. Oh, you I know. know. What a story MCI was. That was one of the biggest yeah. stocks that we covered when I first got into financial journalism. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know... You're getting quality service. 
So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Okay, so you're in the Air Force and you serve and then you leave the Air Force. Yeah, I was a policeman. I was a security policeman in the Air Force. Uh, and I, I went to college in the Air Force. That was the main reason I went to, to the Air Force. And also my father drilled into me from day one that you got to go in the military. You got to spend some time in the military. Mm. Remember, he loved the military. He loved the Army. He loved it so much. Um, so I go in and then I come out after four years. And, you know, it's desperation. I'm married. I got a, I got a baby, baby daughter. And I saved up a thousand bucks. I'll tell you how hard it was to save up a thousand bucks in the military in those days. I didn't, I only took one vacation my whole time there. In and four that years. was like, yeah, yeah. I just, I took like maybe one, like five days off. So I had all my leave days saved up. Uh, so I ended up with a thousand bucks, which to me was like a fortune. Uh, and so we got to New York, you know, went to my mom's apartment, stayed there. Then we got an apartment, same drill. Uh, this was on, this was actually in a more dangerous neighborhood on Lenox Avenue. Um, in fact, there was a horrific, uh, um, a couple of shootings there recently, horrific in that, in that neighborhood. It's still probably the one of the worst in Manhattan. So it's too bad. Same story. We, me and my wife and my daughter lived in a side, in a room inside of an apartment. The room was just big enough that we folded out the, um, the sofa bed. There was maybe a, a, a little bit of an inch between that in the wall. <laughs> and so, and, uh, you know, I start, I started working all kinds of jobs. Um, I went to Baruch. If I wanted to continue to college, I went to Baruch. I started working all kinds of jobs. Then I got a job at EF Hutton, which was really like, um, it, it was, it was scary. Cause then I go to these agencies and you meet this person, this person, this person, this person, they drill you. And Liz, when I got the call for that job, you know, the guy whose apartment we were in, the mm-hmm. phone rings in the kitchen. He yells out, Charles. So I run down and they say, yeah, and, uh, you know, EF Hutton, you got the job. You start off at 13000 a year. Oh. Still, I still think it's in the top 10 moments in my life. Well, that Just first thrill. job for your career yeah. is that moment. I mean, yeah. I, when I got my call, a little, little reporting job in Columbus, Ohio for $20,000 a year, I was... Over the I mean, I jumped in my car, threw everything in there that would fit, and I drove from L.A. to Columbus, Ohio. I mean, yeah. I was ready for that. And it is that moment where somebody takes a chance on yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. It really, really was amazing. And, uh, you know, my working there, I, you know, I always tell people I was so low, like, if you know, on the on the organizational chart. Like if you started at the top with the CEO and you went all the way down, you would have to flip it over. <laughs> then you find me. <laughs> but you were a broker, right? Or what were you doing exactly? I was I was just working with the in a compliance area, uh, and you know we were going over trades that were being made by like a lot of the big fund managers, the CEO's son, and some of these other guys. So I got to see all facets of the business. In fact, one of the things that kind of helped me is I would walk around and I tell this to kids every time everywhere I go. I, talk, I tell kids people love to show you what they know. Mm. 
And I would always go to different trading desks or different parts of the operation and say, excuse me, what's that? Oh, come here, kid. Let me show you. Yeah. You know? and this is called the M2. Uh, this is called that. This is what we do here. And everybody would, would share this information. So then I, there was a, a childhood uh, friend I, that I knew. And um, she, she worked at a small brokerage firm. And she said that they would be willing to sponsor me for the test, but that I would have to pay for everything myself, you know, to become a stockbroker. So I was like, oh, boy. So remember, I'm working at EF and I had another job on the side. Uh, so uh, it's like, yeah, I got to do it. You know, so I went and I met with the uh, office manager. He says, yeah, I think you got a lot of potential. We'll definitely sponsor you, but you still have to, you know, whatever. Mm. So, you know, I was, I was kind of getting ready for the test, whatever, but I had a buddy who worked at uh, in a large firm and he was taking the test too, but he was taking a course. His firm actually sponsored him to take a course. He says, listen, these some nice, really nice people. You should come with me. So it was a Wednesday. I go with him to this class and the guy's like, the instructor's like, no problem. Come on, sit in with this. So I sit in and they give out these practice tests and I'm getting like 73, 76. (laughs) So the test was that Saturday. And back then it was always on a Saturday at Murray Bircham High School. So he says to me, you know, I'm looking at these tests and it's obvious you're not going to pass on Saturday. You should take our course. And I'm looking at him in the back of my mind. I'm like, my man, you don't know me. I didn't say anything. I was really cordial. Hey, thank you very much. I'll definitely think about it. So I called in sick the next two days. I I I went to my mother's apartment. She did have a big glass table. I put everything on that table. And I'm like studying, 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 studying. I go in that Saturday. It's a six-hour test. I finish in less than four hours. One person finished before me. I walked straight over to the office, which was open that Saturday. The manager said, how'd you do? I said, I passed. He says, well, let's wait for the results. I said, no, I passed. Let me tell you, there's a song by Stevie Wonder. And, and um, um, I'm trying to think of the, the name of the song. Uh, there's a line in this song that I kept singing on my way from Murray Bertram High School to the office, to you know, for the new firm. It says, and though the odds say improbable, what do they know? That's right. It's overjoyed. It's called the song, you know. Wow. And though the odds say improbable. <laughs> What do they know? So, and I just kept singing it. I just, I knew I, I knew I killed it. I crushed it. But don't and, you, you know. think, Charles, that the early moments that you spent picking the brains of the people at EF Hutton helped you build a foundation of knowledge that a lot of people who think they're wheeling and dealing on Wall Street don't have today. And that that is why you're such a famed stock picker. That helped, I think, also really my commitment to learning is, you know, I hate to be called like an I, I, I'm really, you know, the expert per se. Like I always tell people I am a student of the market. If I had a business card, that would be on the card. Student of the market. I, 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 I never, never, never stop learning. Well, the market teaches us. We don't sure. teach the market. Sure. That's the thing. And, it's so funny because and- we. We, we do have these guests who come on and like, well, the market's wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, Buffett likes to say, you know, the market is a gigantic voting machine and yeah. you can't control it. And right. I, what I think I'd like to know from you is what, as a student of the markets, did the market professor teach you from the month of January where we saw 
incredible volatility. And just as people thought the world was ending, we'd have a roaring rally come back and then we'd plummet and then we'd rush back to the upside. What should people glean from this past month that we just did? I think there's a couple of things. First, you know, a lot of times things happen and it feels like it just happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So over the weekend, for instance, a bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh. Right. But the erosion of that bridge probably began years ago. This market erosion for January began two or three months ago. One thing I do, my, I have, you know, my, on my newsletter, I have a daily newsletter, is I, I, I monitor market breadth every single day. The internals of this market have been horrific, horrific for about two and a half, three months. So that would have been a screaming signal. Right. So, and so there were days, like many days, in fact, we would close at a new all-time high on the S&P. You would have 1,000 stocks up and 2,500 down. Because of the construction of the index, you just get the right names are up. It masks what's happening beneath the surface. So this has actually been coming for a long time. In fact, the carnage has gotten so severe, we've actually had the equivalent of a market crash. You know, uh, I'm talking like a 2000 tech bubble style crash and many names that people had just loaded up on over the last year and a half, the Pelotons of the world, the Zooms of the world. So this, these are going, these, these are going on at the very same time. A new record high, the 69th of the year. In the meantime, three out of four stocks were down. In the meantime, there were 500 new 52-week lows and only 30 52-week highs. The erosion has already, had already been coming. So it was sort of like that bridge collapsing in Pittsburgh. That's the month of January. The erosion was going on. It finally happened. Now, what are some of the things that, what was the last straw? Well, you brought it up. The, the adjustments for the Federal Reserve, I think, were one. I mean, obviously, valuations have gotten too nutty for companies that aren't earning money. Some of these that barely have revenue. Um, but the adjustment to a hawkish Fed, which I think, by the way, it's just, I think it's overplayed. I think it's not going to. Bank of America says it's going to be seven rate hikes this year. I yeah, think I saw tripping. that. Yeah, no way, <laughs> I think right? they're tripping. You know, uh, today, <laughs> for instance, um, uh, Rafael Bostic, the Atlanta Fed CEO, yesterday he gave an interview with Financial Times. Now, for some reason, you know, the headline writers, they came away with, the, with him saying there could be five rate hikes. He, he said there could be under the right circumstances, but he also said he was looking for three. He also mentioned 2018. That was the last time the Fed raised rates four times. The, net, the, the market was off 19.7%. Almost technically, it wasn't a correction, but it was right there. Sure. The last rate hike in December, right before Christmas, it was, a, it was a crusher. It was a crusher. And somehow, Jay Powell, a few days later, early January, he gets an epiphany. And he comes out and he starts making these kind of comments that suggest that for whatever reason, because he's, he's not a trained economist, he's a market guy. I think he came into the job saying, I'm going to go buy the book. Mm-hmm. But I think something happened to him. He says, well, the book is wrong. And he started to give us signals to that in 2019. So the point I'm making is when uh, Bostic brought, brings up 2018 in his interview. Uh, and he also says their, their, their goal isn't to hurt the economy, just to slow it down. Mm-hmm. It suggests to me that there's no way in the world they'll they'll let this market become devastated. You know, nineteen percent, twenty percent. I think you start to hear them adjust. The, you know, I don't think they're going right. to go. I know it's tough. Suddenly, because, five becomes three becomes right, two. Right, right, right. And and you know, here's the thing: this Fed wanted to be woke. All right, uh, Jay Powell. You know, he did once. Uh, 
And I listen to a lot of their speeches whenever I get a chance. Jay Powell did talk about walking past a homeless person once. And, you know, that kind of got his wills thinking. And I think there's a little bit of guilt there because they know what they do actually makes the richest people richer. That's right. Keeping rates low, just for those of you who don't understand, makes borrowing money very, very cheap. And the big boys are able to borrow, the big corporations borrow at 0%. And the next thing you know, the little guy out there is still taking a paycheck, which gets, listen, taxed at 30 40%. And it's just a very, very tough wealth gap that we're it's facing tough. right now. It's tough. And, and you know, they, they have fewer assets. You know, they, they don't own as many stocks. They don't own land. They don't own. In fact, often they're renting and rents go up to home prices. So it's a tough whammy. But, they you know, he, they talk often about this. Even He's even talked about not hiking rates uh, until, you know, for instance, the unemployment rate if, at around 3.9, which is where it is now, although it's a bogus number to U3, is usually where they would call normally uh, in the past uh, full employment. Like anyone who wanted to work is working, so it's time to hike rates. But he did make the, the he did say, if you look closer at the number, uh, you know, there are parts of the population, if it's at 3.9, like for instance, the black unemployment rate is 7.1. So do you do you knock the wheels off the uh, the economy when once the one or two parts of it aren't healed yeah. yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and he he okay. he's addressed that and he wanted to he wanted to do something about it. I don't I don't know that the Fed is the right you know the right you know entity to do anything about it. To be quite frank with you, and what my message to people is, there can be resentment about all of this, or you can buy some stocks. And I'm not being facetious. You know, people have money. Uh, you know, all those all those ships that are parked outside the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach, they they could have been shares of Louis Vuitton instead of Louis Vuitton. You know, they could have been shares of these companies rather than the products on them. And this has been my mm. main thing. You know, you talk about sacrifice. What did I learn growing up in Harlem? Sacrifice. I wait. You know, Liz, I got a lot of nice stuff but I don't buy anything that I cannot buy cash. <laughs> and even then I don't buy it immediately. You know, I'm scared. Um, well, you know I, what it's like right. not to have it. Right. So, so, you know, when I do it, you know, we bought a house last year. It's been in about one, one year. I could have bought this house 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. It's, it's an amazing house. It's crazy. Amazing. But the last house was nice. Yes. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I just, I don't. I move slow. One of the one of the things Warren Buffett also says is go for what you need, not necessarily for what you want. Right. And I remember the first ten years of me being a financial journalist. I lived in this little house. It was our starter house, and all the other anchors lived in big houses. One of them built her own house, and there was an elevator she was putting in it big apartments. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be house poor. And I wanted to live not just within my means, but beneath my means so that I could save for a really good house. But I have a panic attack when I think about debt. I do not like it. And as best I can, I'm the same way. I don't want to get into any kind of credit card debt as as best I can. Now, that's unrealistic for some people who run into real trouble with healthcare, et cetera. But Charles, 
Do you like stocks here? And if so, which areas look now discounted enough that they're on sale and a screaming buy? A lot of that depends on people's personality and and to a degree temperament. Now, I say to a degree temperament because one thing I try to tell folks is, okay, you're going to have a temperament and the market's not going to uh, work with you. So if you lose sleep and you own a stock that's down 20%, maybe you want to avoid high beta names. But by the same token, you're telling me that you want to be able to double your money in a certain amount of time. So there's people sometimes have to come outside of themselves, right? I mean, I love, I, I, I love these areas of technology that I think are, are, are still revolutionizing the world, you know? Um, Such as semiconductors? Well, I love semis, um, you know, the, the NVIDIAs. In my book, uh, I write this amazing, I have a whole chapter in NVIDIA. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's a remarkable story. And that's, by the way, this story of NVIDIA, uh, it was on a cover of, of Forbes magazine. I, I want to say 2008, uh, January 2008, stock of the year. Stock promptly went down 90%. <laughs> And stayed down for years, for years. And and then, of course, it started to turn around and now it's up a gazillion thousand percent. And the moral of the story is right now, there's a lot of interesting things out there that are going through that early hype phase that are prop that could get hit, that may go sideways. They may be down for a long time. So like PayPal or Square mm-hmm. or, or things that are in the buy now, pay later space, uh, a firm. Uh, I, I think these are going to be real areas. Of course, I love the metaverse. There aren't any real pure plays, you know, to be quite frank with you. Roblox, though, I think it should be in everyone's portfolio. Etsy right here. I buy Etsy right here and I put it away and I look at it once a year if, if I'm a long-term investor. Speaking of putting something away and looking at it once a year, is that how people should look at their 401ks? Because if I hear one more person, oh, my 401k is down. I said, yeah, but you know what? It's up since the big fall of the markets, which was March of 2009. Right. If they're not looking at it proactively, in other words, you know, to whine, <laughs> but in other words, not to whine, but to, to, to add, to buy, mm-hmm. to look for opportunity. I mean, that's, I, I got to tell you, some of the, I had some gigantic wins. I don't, I'm not actively in, in trading the market myself because I have so many people that pay me, you know, mm-hmm. as a, you know subscribing to my services. And mm-hmm. of course we, we do the TV thing. So um, I usually buy stuff that I, I know I'm not going to recommend to anybody else. And I take a lot of flyers, whatever. So I don't even watch these, you know, there, there's a stock called, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was Iridium. And I bought it two, three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, So, and the broker called, I know I emailed the broker. I said, do I have this? He said, yeah. He said, I was up like 500%. I didn't even know. I stopped watching it. Anything I own, I don't even watch. You know, Fidelity did a scan of all of their accounts. And you know who had the best performance of all their investors? The dead clients. Oh my God, because they're just not looking and they're not trying to, bo- right. they're not trying to catch the bottom or reach the top. <laughs> and they're not panicking. The they're not panicking. They're just steady. The dead clients have the best performance. This is Everyone Talks to Liz and we'll be right back. Charles, you've got now 120,000 subscribers in more than 60 countries, as well as several bank and brokerage firms who tune in and look at your Wall Street strategies uh, newsletter, you know, what advice do you have for young entrepreneurs 
who would like to start their own business, which is what you did in addition to being a newscaster in the financial world. Um, Don't wait for the perfect moment. Don't wait for it's just not going to be there Um, and be ready to learn, learn some of the stuff on the go. Uh, you know, listen, I started my business out of a one bedroom apartment in Harlem and I had less than $10,000. And, you know, so I would do the I would do the research at night and I would sell it in the daytime. And then back then there was this directory. They probably still have it. It was called the Red Book. It was a thick, giant book. Uh, you know, of course, the cover was red and it had every brokerage firm, office and phone number. And every day I would just take the Red Book and call up these brokerage firms. Hey, I got a product for you. I got a product. I got a product. I got a product. And then at night, like around six o'clock at night, from six to like midnight, I would put the product together. Uh, and so, you know, the things that I've learned trial and error, it's just uh, absolutely remarkable from, from the market to business and the people. So go for it. My main thing is to go for it. Um, don't even think about failure. Be ready to learn. Be ready to sacrifice. I would. I would. I think I would be. Uh, listen. I don't know too many very, very, like ultra successful people, particularly business owners who something wasn't. You know, some they, they. You. You might have to sacrifice something. You might be married to it three times. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest. It's you're not going to be able really to do. You're not going to be able to do do it like you know. You just you're going to have to show the, a certain kind of love that. Mm-hmm. that means that you take from others and it's just a, a harsh reality. Uh, you know, if you're lucky, uh, you'll still be able to show those folks enough love and be able to put them through college without debt. That maybe you'll, the slate would be quite clean. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big gift to be able to give the kids. Yeah. Um, it, the other morning I made Julian, my son breakfast, he's 17 and um, I said, as I gave him the platter of pancakes, I said, look, I'm like a real mommy. And <laughs> he laughed and he said, I know mom like a real housewife who makes her kid breakfast because I'm busy. I'm working so that I can pay for their education. Sure. So, I mean, look, we'll, we'll do frozen pancakes. I mean, it's perfect in its imperfection. And in this day and age, you've got to reach out beyond your grasp and try and grab something and it's never going to look close enough, but you've got to take that flying leap. Right now. I just, I envy, I envy these young folks. I really do. I mean, to have these, these tools, you can set up a business overnight and have a website and Shopify and and, and yeah. And things that gather data and things to, to go comb through the data. Uh, and and you can have a call office. I mean, there's so many things you can have with relatively such little money. That I mean, the, uh, the I mean, there was a, the hurdles to start a business. I got to tell you, when I first started my business and we moved from the apartment to my first office down on Wall Street, uh, I didn't have a phone system. And and this guy, he actually he he was a, a guy I knew who owned a brokerage firm. He just upgraded, so he gave me his phone system. But I had people working for me sharing the phones. So while one person was on the phone (laughs) and the other person would would be taking those from his last call and then they would take turns sharing the phones. And you just got to go for it. You just got to keep it going uh, by hook or by crook. Liz, some of the stories I could tell you, I'll tell you one of the craziest ones. So this is after the market crashed. 
I, I was, this is when I came closest to going out of business. What, 87? Uh, uh, no, after the 2000 market oh, crash, the big sure, one. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we were hanging on by a thread. I mean, really a thread. Uh, so I had all these people work. And I had just gotten this big, I, I took the entire floor. Uh, I think it was 60 Broadway. I t- 60 Broad, 60 Broadway. One of them was that had these beautiful views of the harbor and all this stuff. Anyway, I took the entire floor. had it built out and everything. Then the market crashed mm. and I'm getting crushed and sales aren't there. People are canceling market keeps going down. And I finally, I, I, I cut a deal. I'm trying to raise money. In the meantime, they, they give me the eviction notice. Oof. And so, so they're up, they come, this is the days and days go by. It's time for me to be evicted. They come to my office. Now, everybody's working. I'm sitting at my desk. I'm working. And the marshals come with them. So you got two guys with guns in their hips. In the meantime, the guy from the building has got the drill, drilling out the lock. He's going to put a new lock on the door. The marshal comes up to me and says, you got to leave now. I said, no, you got to give me a minute. Wait, wait a minute. I got something working. Just give me a minute. And so about an hour, 40 minutes goes by. Now, people in my office are scared as hell. I'm talking petrified. And I'm sending out emails in the office, stay on the phone, stay on the phone. Don't stop working, stay on the phone. And Marshall comes over to me. I'm not going to keep asking. You got to go. Give me a second, sir, please. Stay on the phone, stay on the phones. So finally he comes over to me and he's ready. I think he's ready to rough me up a little bit. My (laughs) COO, she runs in. It hit the wire I was waiting for it hit. So I raised a million bucks and I was able to pay my bills. Oh, uh, th- that's that's how close we came to being kicked out. That's I mean, those are the kind of things you live through when you well, run a business. That Marshall probably saw you stand up at one point and you are one tall guy. <laughs> you could have probably just tapped his head and said, just give me no, another pe- minute. But people friend. were really scared. Though. I mean, like, hey, you got guys walking around the office with guns like, what the hell is this? <laughs> well, I-, I want my listeners to understand this is a classic case of never say die. And one of my favorite things every single day, and I hope you guys watch, is the transition between me and Charles when he hands <laughs> off at 2.59 to my 3 p.m. Eastern show. I'm just so fortunate to work with and learn from somebody like you, Charles. Thanks. I feel the same. Appreciate it so much. It's so much fun. Charles Payne of Making Money with Charles Payne. Oh, my God, this is so inspiring. So it should inspire you guys to never say die, to reach out, start that business. You have so many tools at the tips of your fingers, just like Charles said. And remember, watch us Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's free financial advice and you get the up to the second best information on Fox Business. Thanks so much, Charles. And thanks to my listeners. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.